Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This week, we look at An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose. The Seminole Wars Foundation has published these as letters in the past. However, this is a completely new approach. Rather than letters, this collection takes the content and creates a chronological narrative of Bemrose's life for greater coherence. John Bemrose came to America from England as an unaccompanied 16-year-old in 1831. He joined the Army. He served in the U.S. Army as a dedicated hospital steward during the period of what we call the Second Seminole War. Bemrose documented his five years in America in a series of 60 letters written to his eldest son, Whiteman, between November 1863 and May 1866. Randall J. Agostini, the great-great-grandson of John Bemrose, has compiled and edited these fascinating letters into an engaging memoir. In this first-person narrative, John Bemrose provides unique descriptions of 19th century St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Micanopy, and other locations. He offers personal observations of Florida's diverse populations and key figures in the Seminole War, such as General Clinch and Ransom Clark, who's of interest to our listeners because of the Dade battle and his survival. Bemrose didn't have a high opinion of Ransom Clark, but he did have good things to say about a private John Thomas. Thomas is controversial because some believe that he was not at the Dade battle, having been sent back a few days earlier with a strained back. The strained back is not contested, just his presence at the Dade battle. Bemrose's account gives key information to lead us to believe Thomas was actually at the Dade battle after all. Bemrose recounts dramatic battles, difficult marches through the Florida wilderness, and the challenging life of a soldier. The Bemrose Memoirs, published by our friends at the Florida Historical Society, provide valuable new insights into Florida history and culture from the eyes of an Englishman in the Seminole War. Joining us today to discuss is Bemrose's great-great-grandson, Randall Agostini. Welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. I'm very happy to be chatting with you this morning. Randall, what's the background to this story? Many years ago, when I was a boy, my grandmother got wind of some letters that her sister had picked up from below the bed of their father, who was vacating their apartment in London. She took the letters home. My grandmother learned about them, and she got very interested in them. And I can remember hearing some of these discussions with my grandfather. So what he did was he got the letters from her sister and gave them to a son-in-law, Harold Milligan, who then, I believe, had his secretary type up the letters. So the letters were put into a book. All the typewritten pages were, were put into a book. And I have that book because I inherited it through my mother. When my grandmother died, my grandfather took the book, and when he passed away, it would pass on to my mother, and then she passed it on to me. So that's why I have a book, which is a copy of those letters. So all I can say is what relates to the facts that the letters were found below his bed. So these are the letters he received from his dad. Then they just ended up below his bed. You know, uh, 
he, he probably kept a lot of other stuff below his bed, but, you know, that was found amongst them. From a family standpoint, when my mother gave me the book, she said, you know, I would like to send this to all the members of her family, which we commonly call the Lee family, although it was about the Bemroses. So she asked me if I would copy them, which I did on a copier. And I made up all these copies and I sent them all over the world to cousins, uncles, aunts and cousins and that sort of thing. And I got very little feedback from doing that. If I spoke with any one of them or if, or write, wrote to any of them, I wouldn't get much feedback about the letters, you know. And, 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 and so it was difficult for them, I think, to digest the information the way it was put on paper because... The language was a little different in how the letters were formed and, you know, to what we commonly know today. It was kind of heavy reading. So what I decided to do was I thought it was a good story. And so I said, you know, this would make a good story if it was written in a contemporary fashion. And so that was my idea, still just to send it to the members of the family. So what happened then? When I completed it, it sat down there. I was mulling over how to get it printed. I said, you know, why not? Just let me submit it to the Florida Historical Society. And about six months went by and I suddenly got an email from right in the middle of the pandemic started, you know, in the beginning of last year. So I received this email from Ben Bernacle and he said, congratulations. And I was quite amazed, actually, and uh, very pleased about it. And then a long time went by. He said there would be quite a while that would go by between him accepting uh, the to publish it and, in fact, publishing it. That was about another six months. And so it eventually came out. It was September of this year that the, the books were actually produced where I could put my hands on a book. Randall, how much do you know about the publication as done back in 1966 from a relative of yours? I do not have a lot of facts about. I have, though, learned, and I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect, I don't know if they're the same letters or whether they're copied letters. I just don't know. Because there is a Bemrose who came to America in the late 1930s, just before the war. He might well have gotten the letters himself. He has a son who lives in Houston, and I suspect he may have, have, have published some himself. But I haven't read the other book. So what I do know is that if it was a copy of the letters, it is still fairly heavy reading if it was just copying the same language, etc. What did you learn from compiling these memoirs? Well, I found out something very interesting. I found out that people before me who wrote books were geniuses because they had to carry everything around in their heads. I had the benefit of a computer. So when I was putting the letters into the computer, I found a lot of irregularity. How so? Uh, first of all, the, the letters seem to be in chronological order, but they're not. He began the letters at one specific time, and he had probably a rough idea as to how he was going to go through his exploit in the U.S., but when he related them, I found that sometimes he was talking about the same sequence of events, but from a different standpoint, you know, a, a different recollections. So the first thing I had to do was to sort all that out. So it meant that I had to look at a couple of different pictures of what was taking place and try to amalgamate them into one thread. And uh, after that, it was just some, uh, there were typist errors as well in, in the version that I have. 
So I had to straighten those out, misspelled words and that sort of thing. So it was the computer was really a huge benefit to me to be able to make it into a contemporary story. What challenges did you have in trying to Americanize the language? Okay. <laughs> as you can imagine, this has been one of my difficulties as an American. I have learned to Americanize some of my words, and sometimes I don't. I'm not conscious of it. And so I come out with a word that is still English. And that is reflected in the book, probably. Florida Historical Society has probably corrected some of those errors, you know, to make to Americanize. This was not just an account or a chronicle. There was some moralizing that John Bemrose used to try to guide his wayward son. As you rightfully say, he was moralizing uh, as he went along when he wrote the letters. And that was, that was the purpose of writing the letters in the first place to his son. He was trying to moralize the whole subject of his exploits so his son could learn from the father's mistakes. But there was a little bit too much of this, or a lot too much of this, which frankly might have made it boring to a reader who was interested from a purely historical or from a novel aspect of the story, the continuous thread of the story. I said, okay, I'm going to lift out a lot of this stuff and put it in a separate section. I think it's important to know what he's thinking, but I think that it was interrupting the story too much. And so that's why I did that. How did you handle it? I put it in a later chapter. What we did was change the book from letters to chapters. I put it in something called Bits and Pieces, which begins on page 267. When I lifted out all these things, I would scan those pieces and just drop them in the back of the book somewhere to come back to them later. They literally were bits and pieces that I lifted out of the letters as I went along. And when I came to the end of the book, then I sorted out the bits and pieces and tried to make sense of them. Tell us about Bemrose's background. Um, Bemrose was brought up as an Anglican, and he says it himself. He was not a particularly, he was not a churchgoer when he was young, but he was able to read the moral aspects of society. First of all, he's writing this 30 years later as a much mature person. So he has had the benefit of having his own family. And he became a churchgoer, and he became a very faithful churchgoer, although he, he denies that somewhat. He had the benefit, after these experiences, to write them down in context as though that is how he was thinking and behaving at the time, which he wasn't. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It was hindsight. I considered that important, especially through his eyes, as he wrote this story. I am actually proud of being part of his progeny because I like so many things about him as a person, a person who could grow up in the world and take it as it comes and make some good of it for himself and others. Life is not adversarial all the time. He grabs hold of it and uses his abilities to try and make things better. And, and I thought that that's a nice story for anybody. He could reflect on this because right at the beginning of the book, you can see this young man, this is a 16-year-old boy, acting on nothing else but impulse to go from his place of apprenticeship to land up on a ship going to America. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds crazy, but it, it's actually what happened. He had no plan to do this at all. His big regret was that he never saw his father again. In the book, you see that he, he corresponded with his father, 
And of course, the mail used to take a while, the round trip of the ships. Yeah, that was his big regret. Why did he flee England? What happens is that he is dragged into a conspiracy by his fellow workers. Uh, there's a jealousy that takes place between the two people, and he finds himself on the losing end where he is accused of doing things that he did not do. But he had this habit of accepting the accusations as though they were real. And some people do that. Unfortunately, they don't stand up for their rights. So rather than stand up for his rights, he literally ran away. It was years later when he met Mrs. Loth back in England uh, after he returned that they were able to sort it all out. And she regretted what had happened. And she found out eventually that his co-worker was a scamp. So it was his youth and his, his inability to get proper guidance. His father tried to, to guide him but did not know the gravity of the situation where his son w- was threatening to do what he did do. You know, it's, it's like parents nowadays not knowing what their children are capable of doing when they are stressed. We all grow up hoping to be wiser. He sold all his clothes. The beneficiaries of those clothes that he pawned was the uh, Irish rogue that he lived with for a few days who was pre- prevailed upon by his wife, to be honest. So they got the benefit. If they were able to to get the clothes out of the pawn shop, they got valuable clothes because they were poor people and he came from a family that could uh, afford the things that he pawned, like a gold chain, his pocket watch, a great coat. You know, all those things cost uh, a lot of money. He got pennies on the dollar for them, got into New York, but, but had little else. He had to do something, and quickly, and the only thing that was out there was the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army. <laughs> he got upfront money to join. I think it was $5, if I remember. And it is interesting. You know, he learned some early lessons. Look who befriended him, an Irishman. The Irish at that time hated the English, and yet it was an Irishman who came to his aid. He was on board the boat with him, and the two of them went to a boarding house. The Irishman and the owner of the boarding house were the ones who covered his expenses, his board and lodging. And in fact, the lady who owned the the property was willing to keep him until he got a job as a druggist. But he had this nature of trying to be in charge of everything. And he he just did not accept the goodwill of other people, uh, you know, happily, which he should have done. So headstrong and impatient, he joined the army. How did his adventure start? He was transferred straight away up to Bedloe's Island, which is now where the Statue of Liberty is. That was a, a fort, and that was his ab initio training. And then he met people as he went along. That's one of the extraordinary threads of the story is his, he must have been uh, precocious enough to be noticed and yet uh, worthwhile enough for the people who noticed him to want to help him because there's a continuous thread of how people came to his aid when he was in need. And he left the United States missing very good friends uh, that he had made in America. And in fact, he was able to help one of them later on in life. He also seems to have positioned himself so that he would be noticed. Yes. 
Okay, so there's one point where he says that he slept outside on the porch of General Clinch's office and his field home. And so he was just privy to everything that was going on. But the general also liked him. So the general was very comfortable having this boy who was doing some useful work as well because he had a skill which the army needed at the time. And that was a saving grace. He had spent enough time as an apprentice druggist to know about basic medicine, which was extremely important at that time, especially in an organization such as the army, especially during a time of war. Recall section about the patients and the ailments they had and how they were treated. It's very interesting. I think also to medical people of today and surprising how many of them live. For his young years, he was an important asset in where he was. He was like the matron in the hospital in St. Augustine. He was in charge of the medical facilities in the field. They were grateful to have people like that. He had had a good education, so he had both those assets, which were very useful. And he must have been a likable person. Otherwise, these people would not have allowed him to get away with the things that he did. Again, Randall, such as? Well, there was a disciplinary action they could have faced in St. Augustine with officers. There was the instance when he fell asleep while he was on guard duty. Yeah, there are several different occurrences. A person who has been in the military would recognize, well, how did he scrape out of that one, you know? <laughs> yeah. John Bemrose said of General Clinch that he was the only Christian of the bunch. What do you attribute that to? Those were rough days. And so men typically were not the churchgoers of the time. It was usually the women that kept the faith and kept the family together. So men were allowed to be wayward, and that was their behavior. Differences came in when a man became an officer, they were meant to comport themselves in a particular way. But that was from the standard of being an officer not being necessarily a moral person. At the time, it would have been more of an accident to be a truly moral person, which he thought that General Clinch was. There were some very good people there, and he writes about them. Some of them went very far in the military. He tried to be fair to how he viewed people, the good and the bad, I think. Bemrose also commented on Dade Battle survivor, Private Ransom Clark. He apparently didn't have a high opinion of Clark. Because I think he might have viewed Clark as a bit of a coward who didn't rise to the occasion, who was simply looking after himself. I think that Clark enjoyed the notoriety of being a survivor, uh, which he was fortunate. I think that's the basis of his critique of him. I think Clark, he was viewed by John as a bit of a young scamp and looking after himself and didn't worry about other people. One wonders whether these people stood out in his mind or whether he had a really good memory or whether he might have taken notes. What's your view? I think it was the whole thing was fortunate that he did come across these people in the first place. That was more coincidence than anything else. And there is a big question mark in, I have no way of knowing how Bemrose, was he writing from memory? I don't think so, because remember he, right at the beginning, he talks about purchasing a map in England. And he said, which I have to this day. I think he used to write a lot of notes as he went along, even when he was in the army. I think he must have kept something like a diary, which he referred to later on, because the clarity of some of the instances is remarkable. And I just don't think that he could have remembered things, although he would come back 
and this is what we were talking about right at the beginning of the conversation, he would come back to relate instances from a completely different viewpoint, depending on where it appears in which letter. So I think it was more of a coincidence how he came across the characters who were at the Dade Massacre. And not just people in the army. He knew some of the Indians. And it was interesting how he knew some of these Indians beforehand, before the war ever started. He had an acquaintance with some of these Indians. And so he was able to see the two sides of them as well. So rarely do you get the soldiers, because they mostly, especially in those times, were are illiterate, being able to write down memoirs. So it is just fortunate that somebody like John, who was literate, was able to put those notes probably in a diary. So we are left with those stories. The generals we get and the officers we sometimes get, but very little. And even when a letter is discovered today about what was taking place in the Civil War, it becomes very, very valuable to see the viewpoint from the soldier's standpoint. In that respect, what you don't see is that the letters are, every single one is a letter. It has the address and the date on the top, and it has every single page number, you know, for every single letter. And of course, that serves no purpose in this particular book, but it's all there. What struck you overall about his writing? I enjoyed reading about the way that he was able to view the different cultures, the way that he accepted the Indians' different way of life, which for most part was not accepted. The Indians were viewed as savages. But you notice that one of the officers was actually very friendly with Osceola before the war. And in fact, Osceola could have taken his life during the war and did not. The friendship was so important. I like that aspect. Also, I liked how he treated the question of slavery, which is another window to look through about the aspects of that. And I learned several things about that, you know, as to how many black went to live with the Indian when they ran away uh, and became important in the war on the Indian side. So those are a couple of aspects that I found very interesting. And of course, how important these young officers were. This was their training ground for the battles that took place, you know, 30 years later in the Civil War. This is where they learned to be uh, soldiers and officers. And of course, the whole aspect of Americana during that day, I, it was nice to see that he could walk all the way through New Jersey, living off hospitality a lot of the time, simply walking into somebody's field and picking a couple of apples. And, you know, all that was very acceptable in those days. Military service itself can have a positive effect. There are things that you learn in the military that you would, a person who has never been in the military would never know about. Camaraderie is one, and also their procedures as a discipline in doing things, which is a great help throughout your life. So I think that he cherished being in the military, although, it was, as I say, it was completely accidental. <laughs> At the end of his five-year enlistment, he returned to England. Why do you think that was? He was homesick. He was still young when he returned to England. His, he loved his family. He was very interested in his brother and his uh, sister. So it was to get back to, to his home, I think, was the main objective. He regretted not seeing his father at least one more time. So I think it was just as simple as that. I think that if, if he was living today under the same sort of circumstances and he could just get on an aeroplane, I think he would have come backwards and forwards to America many times. He would have followed up on his friends. He wanted to follow up with his friends. So he had a great love for America. But I think he just simply at that young age wanted to get back home.
So Private John Bemrose leaves the United States Army and returns to Britain as a British subject. If you recall, the way that he actually left for England was rather hurried. It was kind of like you do it now or you don't get another opportunity so quickly. So his concentration, and he also got sick as well. So his concentration was, in fact, getting on that ship to get back to England. So he arrives back in England and... It is then that he has some time to consider what he was supposed to get from the army. One of the things he was supposed to get from the army was a land grant. How did he handle that? It's in a chapter called, I Bequeath My Land. He didn't do anything about it for a long time. But then a chance encounter with an article in the winter of 1863 got him thinking about that land grant again. And what did he do? An article on the pseudical journal relating to a book, The Resources of the Southern Fields and Forests by Francis P. Porsche of Charleston, South Carolina, believing that he might be the son of Dr. P. Porsche of St. Augustine. I purchased the book and wrote to him. He was not a son, but a cousin to the doctor and called upon Dr. Porsche the same evening he received my letter. The old man at once remembered me and was delighted to renew our ancient intimacy. Dr. Frank also answered my letter and marked about the happiness my letter had brought to an old friend. And so that led to him writing to the headquarters army of the United States in April of 1873, he got a reply from General Sherman himself, who took care of the matter and made sure that Dr. Porter received the land grant that John was entitled to. Why did he do that? Because Dr. Porter was a very good friend of him when he was in the army, a very, very good patron to him and looked after him. After the Civil War, as you know, it was very, very tough for a lot of Southerners who had depended upon a completely different type of society. A lot of them lost their livelihoods. They didn't have the benefits that, that were natural in the Northern society. In fact, they were taken advantage of in many respects. And so a lot of the families became more or less destitute. So I think that was a great incentive for John to try and help out his doctor friend. Because at that time, it was very valuable. I mean, that gave somebody automatic worth, especially imagine being a doctor who is not being called upon to perform, because this actually led to him getting a position in the hospital, I think, in Atlanta. So what do you make of this as a book that someone may want to read? I don't think it is a book that somebody would naturally pick up. Although I have been at a book fair where the cover has drawn some interest and which have led to sales. But then I get a different story and different stories from people who have read the book. And it has different things for different people. My eldest son, he enjoyed it tremendously and I've had other people, but for totally different reasons. From a historical perspective, I've had many different answers to that question. I think it's a good reading book so for young men to see. You can make mistakes in life, but you can benefit from them and overcome them, yes. But it's not just for men from people of all different walks of life. There's a military interest, definite military interest. There's a period interest in the history of Florida. And there is just an exciting novel of Young Boy of Adventure. In fact, that was the title that I had given it when I sent it to the Florida Historical Society. And it's interesting, the different perspectives, how one can look at it. I called it an American adventure, but I was looking at it from an English standpoint. The doctor said, no, this is an Englishman in the Seminole War, which is a much more direct title as to what is taking place from an American perspective. We'll have to leave it there. 
Randall Agostini. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. This has been most enjoyable. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.